Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome, as always, to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here, as always, with Derek Davison and Vera the Dog, who is sitting behind me, eagerly awaiting our weekly news update. This is actually a really cool week on American Prestige for a variety of reasons. One, in addition to the amazing news update you're about to hear, we have Rashid Khalidi uh, will be our guest for the week, talking about his new book on Palestine, uh, and we'll actually kick off a series of episodes on the Palestinian resistance struggle. And in addition to that, we've got the first episode in our 10-part series on the history of Afghanistan with Tim Noonan uh, and others toward the end. And uh, we hope everyone really enjoys that. That's available to patrons only. So please, as always, like, subscribe, uh, tell your friends about us. We really appreciate it. But Derek, there's a lot going on in the world this week, so why don't we get to it? And in particular, um, Libya's parliament uh, has appointed a new prime minister, though they already have a prime minister. So maybe you could explain. <laughs> well, they have two now, which... Uh, <laughs> two now. The, I know. Two is better than one, as any I know podcast two heads knows. <laughs> are, two heads are better than one, but in this case, I don't think that's that applies. Yeah, you know the old saying, just the right amount of cooks. So why don't yeah. you tell us what's going on? <laughs> um, so Libya, is, as people likely know, does not have a uh, functional government, really. They have an interim government that was put in place. You're welcome, Libya. Uh, by the United <laughs> NATO Nations. NATO sends yeah. its regards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always happy to help. Um, <laughs> so they have an interim government that was put in place by, you know, a process brokered by the United Nations. Uh, it includes a presidential council that's sort of supposed to exert the prerogatives of a head of state, and then a, a caretaker government. It's called the Government of National Unity. Uh, it's led by a man named Abdul Hamid Dabiba. And uh, that government, under the terms of the political transition that the UN-led process laid out uh, a couple of years ago, was supposed to give way to an elected government as of December. There was supposed to be a process over the course of last year where they would draw up the, the, the various stakeholders and factions in Libya would draw up uh, mutually agreed rules for an election. They would elect a new parliament, they would elect a new president, and then they would presumably, uh, move forward from there. Uh, they didn't do any of those things. <laughs> they didn't even implement some of the very basic elements of the, the peace plan uh, that was supposed to end the Libyan civil war, like getting rid of foreign fighters and mercenaries. Uh, there's still plenty of those in Libya. They should all be gone by now. Uh, and so uh, in December, having done very little to prepare for the elections, everybody decided it was a good idea to postpone them. They postponed first the parliamentary election, uh, and then wound up kind of grudgingly postponing the presidential election because they really weren't ready to hold it. So where where we are now is the parliament that's been operating for several years now during the Civil War and since the Civil War in the Libyan city of Tobruk, which is in the eastern part of the country. Uh, it's known as the House of Representatives. Uh, it has become sort of the de facto transitional legislature uh, under the, in this transitional period. It, it has decided, uh, its leaders, like Ila Saleh and, and others, uh, have decided that 
the transitional government's mandate, and Dabiba's mandate in particular, ran out in December when they were supposed to give way to an elected government. And so they have elected a new prime minister as of Thursday, uh, when we're recording this. They've elected Fatih Bashaga, uh, who is, interestingly enough, somebody who fought against the Tobruk parliament. He was uh, associated with the forces that were based in western Libya during the civil war. So he was on the opposite side of that battle from the Tobruk parliament. He was a militia commander. He was the interior minister of that government during the war. Uh, and he's known to be very close to Turkey. Uh, so there's a, a, some moving parts there in terms of his allegiances. The problem with this is that Abdelhamid Dabiba, the interim current interim prime minister, does not recognize the, the idea that his mandate has run out, and so he's not going anywhere. Although somebody tried to make him go somewhere, apparently Thursday morning, because he was attacked in Tripoli, and what the he's calling, and, and people around him are calling an assassination attempt, somebody tried to murder him, apparently. So there's uh, that to consider. Uh, there has now been this election of a second prime minister. And uh, basically, the upshot is it's starting to look like instead of transitioning to a democratically elected government, Libya could transition back into civil war, which would not be good for, for anybody. Tripoli residents worry that the dispute will renew a 2014 split that divided the country between two parallel rival governments. So basically, it remains totally chaotic. Um, and there hasn't been stability in the country for, at this point, over a decade. Correct. Um, w- one of the, what's interesting about the House of Representatives' decision to pick Bashaga is, uh, I think it's sort of a politically savvy move on their part because it undermines whatever base of support to be, or potentially undermines whatever base of support he may have had uh, in the western part of the country. And so... Um, you know, he, Dabiba's not going anywhere. He's got the support, I think, still of the international community, uh, which recognizes him as the legitimate prime minister. But I'm not sure how much internal support he has at this point, given given this choice. I mean, you know, obviously it's very early to say that, and we need to see how uh, how things shake out. But this is an interesting pick by the parliament of somebody who really, you know, they've been at war with for for several years now, but uh, bridging divides, I guess. Uh, Dabiba, when he <laughs> accepted, uh, one of the one of the problems here with that that Dabiba has cultivated sort of on his own uh, is that when he accepted the post of interim prime minister, he did so promising that he would not use it as a springboard to further office, that he was just going to shepherd the country through this transitional period and then move on with his life. Uh, He instead registered to run in the aborted presidential election. Uh, So he's clearly walked back that promise. And and that, of course, means that he's a a political player now and he's got problems with rivalries with Libya's various other political players. And, uh, you know, that can turn violent, that can turn into something like we're seeing now, dysfunction. So, yeah, it's, it's not a good situation, to say the least. And we'll continue to bring you updates, as always, here on American Prestige. So why don't we talk to uh, our friend of the pod, Kenneth McKenzie, the head of Central Command, really stepped in it this week, Derek, made some uh, pretty annoying, uh, maybe annoying is not the right word. Uh, no, I think made annoying some... is probably the, the best way to put it. So, <laughs> All right, made some pretty annoying comments about Yemen. So uh, yeah, what did so uh, Kenneth McKenzie, old Ken uh, people, say? People are aware that the rebels at Sarlaa or the Houthis, whatever you want to call them, in Yemen have been periodically of late undertaking uh, drone strikes and missile attacks on the UAE. They attacked Abu Dhabi 
uh, last month killed, I think, three people in that attack. And then they've periodically launched attacks at Abu Dhabi uh, and Dubai. Uh, in the week since then, uh, there was one attack that was claimed by a small Iraqi militia. So they may be getting attacks from two places now. Uh, but the UAE, you know, despite the fact that it gets involved in a lot of conflicts in the Middle East and sees itself as a military and political heavyweight, they, they tend not to reap uh, what they sow. They tend not to, to get a blowback from those operations. So this is uh, something of a unique situation for them. The U.S. military, of course, has a basically permanent presence in the Persian Gulf, and we're, of course, allied with the UAE. The U.S. military assets in the region, air defense assets, have responded to the last couple of these air attacks. It's unclear whether they responded and were part of the, you know, shooting these drones or, or missiles down or whether that was entirely done uh, by the UAE. I suspect the former, but who knows. But now the Pentagon is talking about moving additional assets into the Persian Gulf, a place that three presidents now, at least three in a row, have been trying to get the U.S. out of. Uh, the Pentagon's now moving additional assets in to help defend the UAE against these attacks, including, apparently, and this was reported by the UAE's uh, the national outlet earlier this week, a squadron of F-22s, F-22s being very advanced fighter jets. And McKenzie spoke with UAE state media outlets to announce that these uh, F-22s were coming into the region, they were going to help assist in defending the UAE. And then he said something very interesting, which was that the F-22s were coming not to shoot drones out of the sky or to shoot missiles out of the sky, but to attack the drones and the missile launchers in what he termed a, a left-of-launch position, which basically means, you know, if you look at a timeline going left to right, left-of-launch means before they're launched, which means bombing targets in Yemen for an administration that, you know, a year ago came into office and said, we're getting out of the Yemen business, uh, never really did. Now we're talking about stepping up attacks on Yemen. The U.S. Central Command has since issued a denial that is almost surreal. They said that General McKenzie was not at all talking about uh, striking targets him, inside You're Yemen. You're too cynical. You are too though, cynical. <laughs> I mean, the plain language of what he said was, we're going to destroy these Believe in this country when they're still on the ground and still on the ground <laughs> being still in Yemen. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, yeah, so, you know, you can believe Central Command or you can believe your lying ears, uh, but apparently that's, uh, there's a possibility that not only are we going to be doing uh, stepped-up air defenses to, to help our, our buddies in the UAE, but we're actually going to be increasing, escalating U.S. involvement in Yemen, again, from an administration that had promised to do the opposite. So uh, do you think there's going to be any repercussions for General McKenzie, or do you think this is just going to be swept under the rug? No, I doubt and- it. I think, yeah, I think this will be you know, CENTCOM will, will go with this, like, he didn't actually say what you all saw him and heard him say. Right. Uh, yeah, and they'll, they'll just believe your lying ears, as you yeah. just said. All right. Well, that's that's great. I love this. Love this country. Um, okay. <laughs> so let's turn to Ukraine. And in particular, uh, I'd like to point people to a debate that I had with um, the streamer Vouch um, this week on a sort of broad U.S. foreign policy. I'll actually put a link in the show description where we sort of went into a two-hour discussion about, you know, the philosophy of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and I really went kind of in deep into why I think uh, the U.S. should uh, restrain itself or, or 
come home from the the hundreds of military bases we have abroad. And and this really touched on Ukraine. And I I said I said my my I, actually Derek I don't think I used your name so apologize. But I'm like I don't think that uh, Putin's going to invade Ukraine. And apparently <laughs> this is many people think that Putin's like going to do it. How dare you not cite my work on yeah, this subject? I, I, God, yeah. This is it. This is Lennon and McCartney breaking up, everyone. You're you're <laughs> seeing it right now. This is Seinfeld and Larry David finally calling it quits. But uh, so, Derek, why don't you give a little bit of an update on Ukraine and sort of the state of whether or not there will be an invasion? Yeah. So interestingly enough, Reuters, of all places, published a piece this week, an analysis they, they had in the headline. Kremlin watchers detect signs Putin wants to defuse Ukraine crisis. Golly, after all this time, we're finally ready to uh, say maybe he doesn't want to go to war. Okay, so uh, that's interesting. The the root of this piece was a visit to Moscow uh, earlier this week by French President Emmanuel Macron. He, he went on Monday. They met for at least five hours, possibly longer, to discuss this issue. Many of you may have seen the comically large oversized table that they sat at, probably because Putin is afraid of getting coronavirus from anybody. So they were socially distancing. You think that's what it was? Uh, yeah, I do. You think it was the... I yeah, do. So he's I, just I mean, like I know, paranoid. People are like, oh my God, this villainous Putin is trying to intimidate Emmanuel Macron with a big table. It like, just I seemed mean, how, wacky. Th- that was, that yeah. was the, the narrative online. How stupid is this discourse <laughs> going to get, really? Like, come on. Uh, no, I think he's So he's unlike our unlike friend it. of the pod, yeah. Jair Bolsonaro, who enjoys getting COVID 400 yeah, times, Putin, Putin little, just wants to avoid it. I mean, look, yeah. Xi Jinping right, hasn't enough. left China since the, yeah. the pandemic. I mean, these guys are legitimately concerned about this. Uh, so, yeah, I think it was I think it was a social distancing thing. Anyway, uh, Putin, the fact that Putin subjected himself to five hours in a room with Emmanuel Macron says to me that he is deeply interested uh, in diplomacy because I would not do that and I don't even really have a dog in this fight. Uh, I would not put up with that. Emmanuel, I'm so pleased to see you, said Vladimir Putin. So I think, yeah, signs are uh, he is genu- genuinely engaging in diplomacy here. Uh, they, they did a press conference afterwards at which Putin said, you know, we didn't really get much done in this meeting, but there were a few things that that Macron said that could be the basis for further discussion. And so he, he sounded somewhat positive about, at least in a kind of benign way, about what they had, had talked about. And so this is enough to cause people to think maybe we're at a turning point. Macron then visited Ukraine to harass Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. Uh, he did that on Tuesday. He emerged from all of that, claiming that he had gotten uh, agreements from both presidents to renew their work toward implementing the 2015 Minsk agreement, which is supposed to be governing a peace process in the unsettled Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Uh, The Ukrainian government hasn't really moved on Minsk much to the Russian government's consternation. So if there's a renewal of that process, and and there's supposed to be another meeting of the Normandy group, uh, which includes Germany along with France and Russia and uh, Ukraine uh, later this month, uh, that could, you know, see that advance a little bit. That That's that's still a potential way out of this, is to sort of focus on the Donbass and, and implementing this agreement. So what do you think is going to happen, my man? What's what's well, the future so, of this? I mean, so the, the latest now, again, we're recording this on Thursday. Uh, the UK is now undertaking a diplomatic initiative. They sent Foreign Minister Liz Truss 
who famously a few days ago said that uh, the UK stands beside its Baltic allies on the Black Sea, (laughs) exhibiting a really keen understanding of Russian geography there. We're also supplying and offering extra support into our Baltic allies across the Black Sea. They sent her to Moscow to meet with Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia. Uh, that doesn't seem to have gone so well. Lavrov seems to have been a little uh, irritated with her uh, based on what the accounts I'm reading of their uh, post-meeting discussions. But I think it's interesting that the UK now, so Macron had his turn earlier this week. Now Boris Johnson wants to have his turn as the uh, the Kremlin whisperer and as the sort of leader of Europe and its diplomatic efforts, um, which indicates to me uh, a couple of things. One, you know, I think the longer people keep talking, the better this, the better off we all are. Uh, but two, it, it really shows, I think, how little anybody actually cares about Ukraine in all of this. Like, this has become a pissing contest now between Macron and Johnson to see who can be the guy that sort of wrangles Putin into a, uh, uh, into a peace deal. Um, you know, there's, there's been uh, uh, other sidelines to this. You know, weapons going to Ukraine, which are good for arms dealers. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about arranging alternative natural gas supplies for Europe so they're not so dependent on Russia, which could be big business for the United States. It could be big business for Qatar. It could be big business for Israel and Turkey have talked about jumping in on this. So it, it just illustrates how many other aspects of, of this situation there are that have nothing really to do with Ukraine or the Ukrainian people that everybody's sort of seized upon and, and you know, is, is really driving a lot of this, I think. So you're telling me that people don't care about Ukraine, Derek? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I refuse to believe it. <laughs> I'm suggesting that perhaps that's not the top of people's uh, concern list. And, and I'm th- I think wow. you've seen the frustration wow. from, from Zelensky, who has been, you know, saying for a week, couple of weeks now, can you please stop telling people that Russia is about to destroy my country because it's hurting our economy? And, uh, you know, people have not, uh, exceeded to his wishes to, that suggestion. to stop, yeah. to stop what doing a shock. that. What a shock. Um, uh, and which is kind of funny. I mean, there's also one of the other things that I think was indicative here. Macron apparently during his travels uh, blurted out something about one potential solution to this uh, crisis, which is uh, something called Finlandization. And we could, you know, I don't want to digress too much, but this is basically the idea that Ukraine should sign a treaty with Russia or come to an agreement with Russia along the lines of the 1948 Finno-Soviet Treaty, in which the Finns agreed not to join NATO. They agreed to remain neutral in any international conflict of, involving the Soviet Union uh, in return for an agreement from the Soviets not to invade Finland. Again, they already had done so in the Winter War, of course, in the 1939-1940. Uh, there's a lot to Of course, we all know the this. Winter War, Derek. You don't even have yes, to mention it. well, obviously. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot to recommend Finlandization here as a concept and a way out of this. Um, it, it would meet the Russian demand that Ukraine not join NATO, uh, but it would do so in a way that NATO wouldn't have to give up this uh, you know, fantasy that any country that wants to join NATO can join NATO. NATO wouldn't have to say anything. It would be the Ukrainian government sort of saying, we don't want to join NATO. We agree not to join NATO in, in return for concessions from Russia. Um, the issue, the problem with this is I, I don't think it takes into account 
the politics in Ukraine or the the Ukrainian what the Ukrainian people like because no one want. gives a shit. Uh, yeah, right. Because nobody gives thing. a shit. So yeah, it's uh, really funny. Just very yeah. quickly, it's really funny when you hear on on the U.S. side people like claim to speak for the Ukrainian people in any way, shape, or form, and it's just so clear that they're absolute pawns in this sort of uh, yes. great power comp. Well, really great versus medium power competition when you include the U.S. and medium versus medium otherwise. Uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. So I just hope uh, that's very clear to all you listeners on American Prestige. That's all bullshit. People are doing this in their countries for their own reason. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I, I, you know, you can go all the way back to 2014 and the Euromaidan protests that ousted Viktor Yanukovych, the then president of Ukraine, who was, you know, Russian friendly, at least. You know, polling at the time suggested that Ukraine was very divided you know, in terms of support or uh, opposition to that protest movement and to what eventually happened. But over time, and and y- y- you have to say partly because Russia has prodded, it's, you know, it annexed Crimea, it's supported the rebels in Donbass, it's, it's done things to sort of menace Ukraine. Public opinion in Ukraine has shifted in favor of things like maybe joining NATO, maybe joining the EU. Not that that's going to actually happen, but if you compare polling, you know, kind of pre-2014 on those issues. It was very mixed. There's very, you know, very sort of lukewarm feelings about those types of things. Uh, Now it's, it's much more in favor of that. And, and, you know, again, the discourse kind of just ignores whatever's happening in Ukraine at at any level uh, as everybody sort of pushes their own pet solutions or their own agendas. Yeah. People should, should understand that Ukraine is a a sidelight in what is, you know, actually a discussion about whether or not that country is going to be invaded. It's nevertheless been sidelined in the discussions. So we'll, of course, keep on giving you updates related to Ukraine. And let's turn to our final um, our final topic today, and that's this new report uh, released by uh, Brown University's, uh, uh, the Watson Center, I believe, Brown's Watson Center, uh, titled Beyond the War Paradigm, What History Tells Us About How Terror Campaigns End. And before we get into it, I just want to say two quick things. I really want to point everyone to uh, the Costs of War Project. It's genuinely excellent. Uh, it provides a lot of numbers and a lot of data, which is, of course, the lingua franca of our age about, you know, the disastrous consequences of U.S. foreign policy. And I also want to say that we're going to have this report's author, uh, Jennifer Walkup Jays, on uh, on our show in a couple of weeks. So this is really a preview for what's going to be a longer interview. But Derek, why do you think this report is so important? Yeah, I think, as you say, it puts numbers to, to and, and actual data behind uh, criticisms of the war on terror, which we've seen some of that in terms of the cost, and and they you know bring that up. It's been uh, the United States has spent something like eight trillion dollars over the past twenty years on counterterrorism and uh, wars related to the war on terror. You know, hot wars related to the war on terror, and in terms of the death toll, again they get into this uh, something like thirty five hundred U.S. citizens have been killed in terror attacks since. Uh, 1995, or was I think between 1995 and 2019. In the meantime, we've killed hundreds of thousands of people. The direct death toll that they cite is 929,000 people during the war on terror, and that's just people killed in combat. That's not people who have died because we've destroyed infrastructure or, or you know societies. What I think is interesting about this report, and we'll go into a lot more detail when we have Jenny on to talk about it in a couple of weeks, but what I think is interesting about this report is it builds on those criticisms, but also on studies that have been done 
regarding what are the most effective tools for dealing with terrorist groups or dealing with terrorism and and makes a, a very compelling case that war doesn't work. And not, so not even, you know, you, you're looking at the ancillary costs, uh, but looking at the war on terror on its own terms, is this an effective way to deal with this problem? The answer is no. The answer is, you know, if you look at how terror groups have been dealt with in the past and the most effective means, by far, the two most effective means of dealing with terror groups are politicization, which means, you know, sort of bringing these groups into the political process, acknowledging grievances that they may have, and then trying to, you know, adjudicate those grievances through a peaceful means, or policing, treating it as a, a you know, a problem of criminal activity and, and managing it in that way. But those solutions account for something like 80% of the total number of successful conclusions to a, you know, sort of conflict with terrorist groups over the last century or so, or, uh, you know, depend, they, they look at a couple different studies on different timetables. Um, but I, that's what I think is is interesting about this report, and people should definitely check it out. Again, well, we'll be talking to the author in a couple of weeks, but I think, you know, it's out now, so if people want to go read it, we can uh, uh, certainly direct them there in the show description. Absolutely. Um, and, and in general, that project is just really useful for um, getting the sort of data that you need to back yeah, up I your arguments. Yeah, I cite those guys all the time. Yes. Uh, great. So I think that's it for this week. I hope you guys enjoy our interview with Rashid Khalidi uh, and our first episode, Patrons Only, on um, the History of Afghanistan. So Derek, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek uh, here as usual. Uh, I'm joined uh, also as usual by my co-host, Danny Bessner. We're very pleased to be joined by Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. Professor Khalidi is one of the world's foremost experts, commentators, scholars on Israel-Palestine, uh, and we are very grateful that he's agreed to join us to walk us through the history of that conflict and its uh, where it stands today. Uh, he's written widely on the subject, many books, papers, articles. Uh, the one we will be referring to here today, and we'll have a link in the show description if you want to check it out and maybe buy it, uh, is The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017, was published in 2020. Uh, definitely check that out wherever you buy your books. Uh, Professor Khalidi, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. So I thought... We could start with maybe sort of a, kind of a general overview of your book uh, to for people who aren't familiar with it uh, to sort of introduce them to it, um, and maybe even kind of you know a little more preliminary than that. As you uh, you wrote the book a couple of years ago, you've been writing and commenting on Israel Palestine for many many years. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, how you've seen or what changes you've seen in the way that discourse has been carried on both at the sort of um, media or let's say popular level and then maybe more slowly or not at all, uh, as the case may be, uh, at the political level? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been a huge change. Uh, when I was an undergraduate many, many years ago, the very word Palestine was taboo. I mean, for some people, it still is. But um, discussion of Palestinian rights or a Palestinian view of things today 
is is commonplace on social media and um, in public opinion on university campuses. Things that were inconceivable 30 or 20 or 40 years ago are are now openly discussed and you know debated. And there is not just one narrative, which is that everything Israel has ever done is perfectly right, and Israel is a miraculous, you know, response to the horrors of the Holocaust, and there are no Palestinians. I mean, that's what an Israeli prime minister said in 1969, and that represented, you know, much of public discourse, I think. She was speaking for many, many people, not just her government. Um, that's not the way I think a lot of people think of it today. And so there's been a huge change, I think, in public discourse. Um, it's been helped by things like the Amnesty International report or the Human Rights Watch report or the Israeli Human Rights Group B'Tselem report that talk in great detail about what Israel is actually doing and describe that as apartheid. But on a, on a, in terms of discourse and public discussion, and, 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 and especially among younger people, there's a much greater openness than there ever was before. Um, that hasn't been reflected in the mainstream corporate media, obviously, to the same extent. It's, there's a little bit of openness there that wasn't there, but, um, and it hasn't been reflected at the political level. Of course, our government still, uh, hasn't really changed much in terms of its, its policies, whether you have a Trump or whether you have a Biden, um, some basic things continue, but I think public opinion has changed and is changing. Um, and uh, whether that'll continue, well, who knows? But um, th there's no question that there's a trajectory from complete denial that there is such a thing as Palestinians and uh, just sort of parrot-like repetition of Israeli talking points to a situation where there at least is a debate in the public arena. So I have a theoretical question to ask. How would you explain or, or what do you think is going on when there has been a shift in discourse, particularly with people under 40? I mean, even myself, I grew up going to Solomon Schechter. You know, I went to Columbia <laughs> during the whole, uh, the, the era of Barry Weiss is how I put it in the mid-2000s. Ah, yes, the era of yeah. Barry Weiss. <laughs> yeah, the Project David how fiasco. How we remember. Yes, what I, I was a history major then, actually. But uh, just, but the, the point that I, that concerns me is that there has been a discursive shift, but like you said, there's been almost no shift in policy. So I was wondering if that reflects anything larger about the American polity um, in general, or, or do you think it reflects uh, anything about this particular issue? I mean, I, I don't think we should be surprised. Our nerve system privileges <laughs> certain interests and views. You can't change uh, certain things, and you. And, and some things are, are, are very difficult to change. Uh, I think most people are against forever wars. The United States is const constantly fighting them. Most people would probably like a smaller defense budget. You can't decrease it. Uh, there's wide public support for abortion under certain circumstances. Look at what's happening with that. I could go on and on and on. Special interests and so on govern our, govern our political system because they they pour money into it. So this is not a case uh, only of special interests. This is a case where you have very strong views and all kinds of strategic connections to Israel, um, which which are really powerful. Uh, 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 what's the word? R blocks to any kind of change in policy. So what does that suggest about the nature of discourse or the nature of public opinion um, in terms of it being actually effective in transforming power? Because there was, a, a, my understanding from the historical profession, and I've studied this a bit, is that, you know, in the 80s and the 90s and 2000s, there's this big shift to discourse analysis and cultural analysis and a, a move away a bit from social history and Marxist history. And I think that mm -hmm. from the perspective of 2022, that hasn't necessarily been effective in, in actually transforming policy. So I was just wondering if you think that's accurate, right. if you think that's incorrect, or do you think there was a 
wrong strategic choice to focus so much on discourse at the expense of more, I don't know, let's say practical political affairs. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think that, that uh, uh, ditching political economy was a terrible mistake. I mean, anybody who thinks that discourse is more important than money in politics um, hasn't been paying very close attention to the way American politics worked. Uh, I'm not. I'm not denying the importance of, disc- importance of discourse. I mean, it was discourse that a- ended American support for the Vietnam War. There's no question. Public opinion changed, and finally, finally, many, many years too late, the war ended. We just did a long series on Vietnam with a Vietnam historian. Uh, his argument is that it was actually mostly conservative political opinion in the elite, and that the the, the protests actually didn't do that much. But mm-hmm. uh, I think that's an open uh, that's an open discussion. But I, I, I'm a bit skeptical about that claim about the protests uh, informing the war. I think it had helped end the draft, which might have actually uh, enabled forever wars, ironically. Um, but uh, I think the war actually ended because conservative political elites turned against it in the early 1970s. Well, that, that would have been part of a larger shift. And I don't think that, that the fact that lots of us didn't want to go to Vietnam had no effect. I think it had an enormous <laughs> yeah, agreed, effect. Agreed, agreed. I mean, they were fighting a certain kind of war. They have transformed the military, as you say, to enable the fighting of drone and, and forever wars. But uh, at the time, the only kind of war the United States knew how to fight was sending huge numbers of draftees over to Korea or, or into World War II or into Vietnam. And, and I really do think that... that anti-draft resistance played a big role, maybe only in convincing the conservative elites, but, you know, in any case, I think that as far as Palestine is concerned, um, there are huge structural obstacles in terms of changing policy, whether you talk about money or whether you talk, and by money, I'm not talking only about lobbying. I'm talking about the arms industry. I'm talking about very powerful interests uh, related to the Gulf. Uh, American involvement in the, in, the, in the Gulf and oil and so forth um, that are linked uh, to the, the, the status quo as far as Israel is concerned. Um, but I do think that public opinion eventually and sooner or later will have an impact. I mean, the Democratic Party is changing on this. Uh, the grassroots of the Democratic Party is basically supportive of a, of a position much more sympathetic to the Palestinians than the entire leadership and the money that supports supports the Democratic Party, the people who give money to the Democratic Party and the people who run the Democratic Party, the Pelosi's and the Schumer's and the Biden's and so on, are not changed in any way uh, by this shift at the base. But I think over time, you might well see that that'll have an impact. It may not. I'm curious. You talked about the Amnesty Report, obviously, in Human Rights Watch and Beth Salem, who have all now um, been willing to to call what's happening in the, the occupied territories apartheid. Um, and and inside I'm, Israel. The, the Amnesty International and, and report today yes, made it very clear yes. from the river to the sea, you have different rights for different people and it's discriminatory and they describe it as apartheid. But even that, even the willingness of these international NGOs to use that term and to talk frankly about uh, what's happening seems to me to be the, uh, a partly driving this shift in discourse, but also a product of a shift that was already happening. And I'm curious to what you would attribute that shift? Is it sort of the proliferation of media that's allowed greater access to Palestinian stories that don't have to go through mm-hmm. the kind of gatekeeping of the New York Times or the, the Washington Post, et cetera? Yeah. Um, or, you know, are there other factors at play here? I'm curious as to what, what you, you find is sort of the causes of that shift. I think it has to do with at least two factors, very likely more. 
One is the rise of a new kind of activism among Palestinians and among students in this country, um, which just didn't exist before. There was no uh, ability on the part. Well, it was, it was true that the PLO had an ability to reach certain publics, but not in this country, in other parts of the world. They were very effective at a certain point in the 60s and 70s. But in this country, I don't think we've ever had anything like we have now, where you have young people in Palestine and young people in this country essentially on the same wavelength. And uh, people will say social media, social media. I'm going to talk about them in social media in a second, but I'm talking about what people are doing. So folks in Palestine are reaching uh, international audiences in ways that simply didn't happen before. And there's a receptivity on the part of younger people in this country to listen. Doesn't mean they're necessarily convinced, but you did not have access to those facts and that point of view at all. Uh, it was it was it was completely blocked out by the mainstream media and by a denial of all kinds of basic facts about what's going on in Palestine in the past. And so uh, there's been a huge breakthrough. You had one narrative. Israel was good. Everybody else was bad. End of discussion. Arabs were treated in terms of racist caricatures uh, and so on and so forth. That's not to say that that caricaturing doesn't still exist. Anybody, anybody looks at a Republican politician talking about this and you'll see, you know, the Neanderthal attitudes of 40 and 50 years ago still there. The second thing is, I think, social media and the breakdown of the monopoly of the mainstream corporate media uh, over access to international reality. Or, or for that matter, domestic reality. And at least for younger audiences, this is something. I, I talk, when I talk in, in class 30, 40 years ago, 20, 30 years, it, 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 it reveals my age when I say that. And I'd mentioned something that was on television or I'd mentioned something that was in the New York Times. A proportion of my class would know what I was talking about. Nobody in a large lecture course today knows what the headline in the New York Times was that morning. They may know the news that was in the New York Times, but through, filtered through much different filters. Um, they're more likely to know it today than they might have been 20 or 30 years ago. So you have a, an audience that has access in ways that simply was not possible uh, 30 years ago or even 20 years ago. So I think both of these are factors. I think there probably are other factors. Um, I think that the what I would call the Holocaust 1967 generations, for whom the formative experiences were the extermination of European Jewry by the Nazis and what they saw as the potential extermination of Israel in 48 or 67, and, and for whom these were traumatic events. I have a guy banging outside my window right now. I'm sorry. I hope, I hope your listeners aren't, aren't disturbed it's, it's by that. It's the deep state. They're coming for us. Yeah, yeah the deep state. They're right. after us. It's the three-year facade uh, work that's been done on this building. Um, th that generation will never not believe a sort of Exodus movie version of reality. You know, they, 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 for them, those were the traumatic experiences of their parents' generation or their generation. And they knew about those things per firsthand. I, I talk about it in a chapter of the book where I go out of the, I, I go out of Grand Central Station and I see people collecting money in bedsheets for Israel. They weren't collecting money in bedsheets for Israel because, you know, they liked Israel. They thought Israel was in danger of extinction, another Holocaust. I mean, that language was pervasive. Well, that generation, fortunately, are getting old now, those generations. That ge that was my, growing up in the 1990s at a Jewish day school, that was the language as well. You know, hmm. it was, and I went on a teen that's tour. What your that teachers, that's what your teachers knew, understood, and believed and taught you. 
my teen tour was literally you go to Auschwitz and then you go to Israel. You know, yeah. the message is pretty is pretty clear. So, so, so my point is that a 21st century audience of kids who are born after 2000, okay, for them, that's those are part of their education. It's not like they don't know about the Holocaust. They know more about the Holocaust, actually, in real terms, maybe than than my generation did. Uh, but because it's part of our curriculum now, it's part of our you know understanding of of what happened in the world in the last hundred years. At the same time, they don't see Israel in those terms. They see Israel as this overweening, arrogant superpower bullying people in the Middle East in no danger whatsoever from any possible direction. Uh, unlike older people for whom Israel will always be a endangered, tiny outpost, uh, always on the brink of being submerged by a tide of fanatical, hostile, blah, 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 blah. And people know that's not true. I mean, there are half to a dozen Arab countries that have diplomatic relations with Israel. Where are they going to throw them into the sea? They want, they're, they're importing Israeli dates in the Emirates. They have embassies in a half dozen Arab capitals. I and mean, where is this, this hysterical fear for Israel going to find roots in reality as far as young people are concerned? So they, they have, first of all, a better view of Israel. And they understand it in a more calm way and in a, in a more rational way and less hysterical way, if I may. And secondly, they're beginning to get a better sense of what Palestine is and what the Palestinians are because they have access to narratives that simply never existed or were not allowed to, to exist um, 40 or 30 years ago. So as you were writing the book and as you're looking at the landscape in you know, 2019, 2018, 2020, uh, in terms of Israel-Palestine, uh, what was your aim in in doing a sort of broad history of Israel Palestine at that time? And if you had, um, you know, a takeaway or two, like a key takeaway that you want an English speaking audience to come away with, even an English speaking audience like this one that I think is broadly sympathetic to to the Palestinian cause, uh, if there mm -hmm. are a couple of things that you'd like people to learn from this that that maybe they didn't. They wouldn't have already uh, known or been exposed to mm -hmm. uh, what what would those be well first what moved me to write it and then what i'd like them to take away uh, from it what moved me to write it was basically my my son and another cousin of mine just after me constantly saying enough already with writing for other historians enough already with these heavily documented monographs <laughs> Uh, you know, would you please write something that ordinary people can read? Would you please write something that's relatable? And, you know, that's... nobody else can do it but you. And he he kept after me and my cousin, uh, Noef, kept after me. And they were relentless, each one independently. You know, um, they, they didn't know. <laughs> the, the two of them didn't know that they were pestering me separately. And I finally relented. I said, I guess you guys are right. Um, and then my son, who's a playwright and who who, you know, writes in a much more approachable, relatable style than I do, said, and make it personal. For God's sakes, make it personal. You know, you know stuff, you, you've heard stuff, you, you have connections, you have uh, uh, access to documents and narratives and stuff that if you put it in, in a relatable, personal way, might make, you know, the very hard arguments that you're trying to make uh, easier to understand. And I had a wonderful editor. I just had actually dinner with her last night who then helped me to hammer this thing into a book that both made a strong argument, I hope, and at the same time could be read as a story or stories. 
So that's that's how I came to write it. Um, it's completely different than anything I've ever written. I, I mean, I, I, I've been trained rigorously since I was an undergraduate history major not to write in the first person. I've been trained rigorously to use a certain form of, of, of you know, prose, um, which I had to unlearn, which was very, very hard. And Reva, my, my, my editor, and, and to some extent, my son also, uh, beat that out of me, saying, you can't say this. This is, this is these long sentences. Ah, come on, make it direct, make it whatever. So that was, that was, that's how I came to write it. Um, the takeaway is that much of what you thought was the case about Palestine is wrong. This is not uh, either some kind of ancient hatred for the Jews surging up yet again in this part of the world uh, or some kind of inveterate Islamic anti-Jewish anti-Semitism. And it's not just a struggle between two peoples, though it is that. You know, there's this idea, oh, the Palestinians and the Israelis, they're more or less equal and, you know, they're right against right. Um, I, I'm, I'm arguing something much harder to, to understand, which is that actually this is a war on the Palestinians, waged not only or just by the Zionist movement in Israel, but by world powers, great powers. The British introduced the problem and the British structure uh, things as they came to be. Um, you don't have Balfour. You don't have the League of Nations mandate. You don't have the British crushing the Palestinians in the 30s. You don't have the state of Israel. It's very simple. You don't have the United States and the Soviet Union voting for partition, giving most of a majority Arab country to a Jewish minority. You don't have the state of Israel. You don't have them supporting that state and, and, and arming it to the teeth, and you don't have a victory in the 1948 war. So I'm making multiple arguments here. One of them that this has been an attempt to colonize and take over a country and turn it into another country. I, I quote uh, uh, Zev Jabotinsky saying, uh, they're going to continue to try and stop us from turning Palestine, he puts it in quotes, into the land of Israel. And that's what Zionism is about. It's turn Palestine into, quote unquote, Palestine into the land of Israel. And that's what's happened. That's what's happening. It is now Israel, all of it from the river to the sea. And that was always the objective. Anybody who said otherwise was either lying or, or deceiving themselves. That was always what was intended. It was not to have a Jewish minority live amongst their majority. If you wanted to live as a minority, a minority, you could stay in, the, in a shtetl and live under persecution as a minority. The whole point of Zionism was to create a Jewish majority state in an Arab majority country, which, which involved a creating a new sovereignty and be displacing as much as possible of the population. That was always the objective. Anybody who says otherwise is either lying or deceiving themselves or selectively choosing. And I'm, I try and make that argument in this book. Um, and that's why what is coded as banditry or criminality or terrorism in any anti-colonial struggle is actually resistance to a process of displacement and ethnic cleansing and replacement of one people and one, you know, potential polity with another polity, a successful replacement. Uh, and I compare it to other instances of settler colonialism, like the United States, like Australia, like Canada, like New Zealand. A new polity has been created. There is an Israel. There's an Israeli people. So it is now a struggle between two peoples. But that's, if you see it only in those terms, you miss where it comes from. There's an American people because we eliminated a Native American population. There's a Canadian people because the First Nations have been, you know, reduced to what they are today in Canada and so on and so forth. And that's the case in Palestine with the difference that obviously you don't have that huge population imbalance that you have in Australia and Canada and so on. So these are white settler colonies established by British imperialism 
over the course of hundreds of years, each completely different from the other. They have nothing. I mean, the similarities between South Africa and Palestine are minimal. Similarities between uh, uh, the United States or Canada and Palestine are minimal. But there is a process there. And in fact, early Zionists saw that saw themselves as part of that process. They said, we are colonists. This is a colonization process. Jabotinsky writes it all the time. You have institutions like the Jewish Colonization Agency. That's yeah, not an anti-Semitic slur. Yeah. That's what they called themselves. So uh, that's that's what I'm trying to say with this book. So one, I would love to go back to the early 20th century and sort of put the colonization of Palestine in a larger context. Because mm-hmm. a, a big difference is that unlike in South Africa or the U.S. or Canada or New Zealand or Australia, it's Jews a lot of times from Central Europe, not necessarily Jews Mainly, from the British. Al- almost entirely. Yeah. Yeah, Central Eastern Europe. Exactly. Right. So that's that's interesting. That's different. So maybe you could place that in, in the larger context of British settler colonialism and right. also keeping in mind that there are other forms of British colonialism, like, right. for example, in India, right. famously, the India Rocks. Or Egypt, totally or different Iraq. form. Yeah. Totally exactly. different. So you have this interesting situation where a lot of the settler states, you know, are, are, are super abroad, like Canada, US, Australia, and a lot of the more, you know, sort of other forms of British colonialism are in, you know, what, what was derisively called at the time the Orient, like you said, Egypt, India. Uh, and then you have this issue, uh, this, this colonization of Palestine, which is in the Orient, but is adopting a model that is usually used elsewhere. So exactly. could you try to explain that paradox and why yeah. it came to be in that way from the, from the, we could get into the history now, from right. the early 20th century and why the British all of a sudden, st- I mean, obviously the post-Ottoman collapse, whatever you want to go into, but uh, yeah. that's a pretty interesting paradox. Well, I mean, the Zionist project and the state of Israel are completely different from other settler colonial paradigms because in every other case, the settler colony is an extension of the metropolitan population. The English send English and, and Scottish and Irish people to North America and, 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 and Australasia. The French send French settlers to Algeria. The Zionist movement was not British. It was an independent national project to establish a Jewish state, not a British state, under the protection of the British Empire, yes. But in that sense, it's completely different. Completely different. There is a national element there. I mean, in other settler colonial projects, a national element can develop. It's developed in the United States through our independence. It it, it, it could have developed in, in, in northern Rhodesia with the unilateral declaration of independence from Britain. So colonists sometimes do rebel against the mother country, but it is their mother country. Britain wasn't the mother country of Jewish settlers in Palestine. They saw themselves as returning to their ancestral homeland. They saw themselves as part of a Jewish people. They saw themselves as creating a new sovereign Jewish entity in Palestine or recreating in the the minds of of, of many of them. Um, And in that respect, Zionism is completely different from every other settler colonial project. Um, Britain decides to adopt Zionism during World War I, having earlier decided that for strategic reasons, it wants to have control of Palestine. They might have chosen another means to have control of Palestine as they chose in Egypt or Iraq or elsewhere through a different form of colonization, which didn't involve settlement. They chose to use Zionism. And in 1939, they abandoned the Zionist project because they had bigger fish to fry. They had World War II coming. And so they, something quite extraordinary, uh, they sort of repudiate their uh, 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 their wards, the, 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 the project that they have nurtured and helped to, help to, help to fortify in Palestine, right up to 1939. Just like that, they turn on a dime, the Brits. 
for st- the same strategic reasons. But why did they choose to use the Zionist movement in this way? That that seems to be a pretty interesting choice in the right. context of the times right. in the late teens and early 20s. So there's the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, there's the replacement of, right. of the British and the French in the Middle East. And so it seems like a strange choice for British elites who never expressed any particular interest in Central European Jewry to suddenly start to use this for a tool. So what is the, what is engendering that? On the, uh, on the contrary, the, the interest of the British elites in, in, in central, persecuted Central European Jewry was to keep them out of Britain. <laughs> right, exactly, right. <laughs> Balfour, he of the Balfour Declaration, was prime minister at the time of the adoption by the British Parliament of the Alien Exclusion Acts directed at keeping Jewish refugees out of Britain. It was, a, it was one of the most anti-Semitic acts in British parliamentary history. Balfour was the prime minister in charge of putting that act through Parliament. So, yeah, they were very concerned with Eastern European Jews. They didn't want them in England or in, in, in Great Britain. Um, at the same time, uh, in a very large part of the British Christian elite, there was an evangelical disposition going right back to the early 19th century, Lord Shaftesbury and many, many other members of the elite who talked about the restoration of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is a duty for Christians in much the same way that American evangelicals see support for Israel as a Christian duty. They may be themselves anti-Semites like Balfour, (laughs) but at the same time as they have these attitudes, we don't want them here, but we want to help put them there because that's important. Um, So that's, that's one reason that they, that they uh, latched onto Zionism. Another reason is that it was, it was strategically convenient. You know, the idea of having a settler population there as a garrison uh, is always a good idea when you're in a hostile environment. Um, and so for a variety of reasons, different, different, different members of the cabinet. I mean, you have to actually go into the mentality of what did Churchill think? What did Curzon think? What did Balfour think? What did Lloyd George think? Um, but one really important thing was Christian Zionism. And the, the main thing I've always argued, I mean, my first book was about this, was strategic. You know, it suited the interests of the British Empire. To do this. So for oil, it, what do they want? Oil, they want a base in no, the region. They wanted to defend. They wanted to defend the eastern frontiers of Egypt, where the Suez Canal was located, connecting right, for trade Britain and the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean and India. And they wanted to control the terminus of the shortest land route between the Mediterranean and the Gulf. So they wanted to control the Suez Canal, the sea route, and they wanted to control the land route. Before World War One, this. This had to do with building railways, and Britain was deeply involved in trying to either thwart others from doing it or doing it themselves. After World War I, this became roads, pipelines, and air bases, connecting Britain with its, with its Asian empire, Malaya, uh, and so forth, Burma, India, and so on, and East Africa. In terms of, of the Royal Air Force, in terms of oil, they built pipelines across that desert that they took in Palestine, Jordan, and Iraq uh, during and kept after World War I. So there were strategic, those were the strategic games. Uh, they changed over time, you know, from railways to roads and, and, and pipelines and, and, and air bases. But the basic idea of controlling the termini at both ends, the Mediterranean end and the Gulf end, was a British objective from even before they were thinking about Palestine. I mean, that's why they took Kuwait in 1899. And so um, those strategic aims drive them all through. And that's why they'd abandoned the Zionists in 1939. Hey, we got a war with the Nazis and a war with, the, with Mussolini. We're going to fight it in the Mediterranean. It's going to be fought in the Arab world. Maybe we should stop 
you know, blowing up Arab houses and shooting Arab prisoners and making ourselves look really bad in the Arab world since we have to fight on their territory and we're going to need to use their armies to do our dirty work. So maybe we should shift away from support for Zionism. And in, on a dime, they, they shift in 1939 with the white paper. And it, it's seen as a bet- it's rightly, I think, seen as a betrayal by the Zionists. Yeah, that's how that's how I was taught it in school. Well, that's, that, that's sure. right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Uh, the problem is that in Israeli historiography, Israel is seen as an anti-colonial power. Israel was the spoiled stepchild of colonialism until 1939, at which time they found bigger and better patrons, which is the United States and the Soviet Union. Ben-Gurion was a very smart fellow. He said the coming powers are not Great Britain. The coming powers are the Americans and the Russians. And we have no choice anyway. The British have abandoned us. I'd like to take a step back, actually, from the, the sort of early 20th century and go back to a story that you tell very engagingly in the introduction to your book about your great, great, great uncle. I think I got all the greats in there. Uh, Yusuf Diel Khalidi, uh, who was mayor of Jerusalem for a time. He was an Ottoman official, held several imperial posts, was educated in Europe, uh, and had a correspondence with Theodore Herzl. Uh, you know, back and forth, they, they, they wrote to each other about uh, Zionism. And right. one of the things, as you say, the, as you said just, just now, um, the Zionist movement sort of adopted an anti-colonial trapping uh, later on. But I, I'm struck in this correspondence, and you know, you can sort of maybe you can sort of t- talk about uh, the letters and what they said. Uh, mm-hmm. But how much it, it those just Herzl's response sort of reveals about the openly colonial roots, right. the way that that the early Zionists talked about this, you know, explicitly as a project of colonialism. Right. I was doing research about 30 years ago in Jerusalem in family papers, and I, I, I came upon this, this, this character, a man named Yusuf al Khaldi, who, as you say, had been mayor of Jerusalem a couple of times and was also actually the elected deputy for Jerusalem in the first Ottoman parliament and who served in a number of positions. He was, uh, he was uh, someone who had also studied and taught in Vienna. And he knew German and he knew French and, and, and English and so on and Arabic and Hebrew. Um, and his books are in the family library. So you can see, you know, his range of interests from his books and his correspondence. Um, so I always knew about him. And I, I, tra- I, I centered this, this correspondence between him and Herzl in 1899, I think it was, because I think it's very revealing, not just as you say, of, of, of the things that Herzl said and didn't say. Um, so he, he wrote a letter to Herzl. Um, from Istanbul, where he was sort of in exile. Um, Sultan Abdul Hamid suspected him as a liberal and a reformer, as you know, dangerous to his autocratic regime. So he kept him in Istanbul. He was forced to stay in Istanbul. Um, so he writes from Istanbul uh, on hotel stationery. I don't know if that's where he was staying, to Herzl in Vienna via the medium uh, of the Grand Rabbi of France, who he knew. Um, and the letter is received by Herzl, and Herzl replies. And in the letter, what Yusuf Dia says is, look, you and we are cousins. Uh, I have deep sympathy for the Jews. I know what kind of persecution you suffer. And, you know, I can understand this desire for what Zionism is about, why, why Zionism exists. And, you know, perfectly understandable, your connection to the Holy Land is indisputable. I mean, any good Muslim believes it. There's a whole surah of the Quran. Uh, which talks about the Jewish connection to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem, to Palestine, and so on. So he says, you know, of course, this is this goes without saying. However, 
your project in Palestine has real problems. And he lists them. Among them, there is a people here which will not be superseded. And as revealing as the fact that in 1899, Yusuf Di al-Khaldi was very perceptive about what was coming down the pike at the Palestinians is Herzl's response. Because Herzl basically completely ignores pretty much everything he's saying. And if you link it to what the Zionist movement was saying, they had had, Herzl had organized the first Zionist Congress a couple of years earlier in Basel. He'd had another two in the interim between that first Congress and the time of his response to this letter. And, and as, as Yusuf Dia, who read German and got the papers from Vienna every, every week, I, I, the papers are still in the library. He had, you know, he had subscriptions. These, he knew what the Zionists were saying to each other and to the European public. And basically, Herzl was pretending, thinking he could pull the wool over his eyes and say, oh, we have no objective to get rid of you. And then you read what the Zionist movement is saying in, in its meetings, and you read what Herzl, we, we now can see in Herzl's diaries, we're going to spirit this population out, and so on and so forth. Um, and you can see that a mode of denialism and a mode of obfuscation is there from the very, very beginning in dealing with the Arabs. Is that true uh, of all the Zionisms? Because my understanding, I'm not an expert, but there are varieties of Zionism. Sure. And one of the moves in recent historiography has been to sort of disentangle. And so though Herzl has historically, of course, been taught as the, the father, it's, it's actually much more complicated than that. So it, what would you say are, are the, what's being negotiated amongst the different Zionisms at that time? And in particular, why did the UK pick, what did the UK pick a particular Zionism? Or are they like, you all go and figure it out on your own? Well, one of the things that Herzl does, I mean, to his great, I mean, he, he is, I think, rightly, rightly recognized as the founder of the of modern political Zionism. I mean, you're right. There are, there's cultural Zionism. And there are people, there's there are people labor who are Palestine in the 1870s and 1880s. Labor Zionism comes later. We're talking about before World War One. With the, with the third idea, you're right. You have socialists coming from Eastern Europe in, a, in, in, in the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, and they later take over the Zionist movement in Palestine, and they govern yeah, in Israel Gurian, for its yeah. first decades. But that, those are internal differences. What, where you go and how you do it uh, was the source of a lot of the differences um, in the early years. And at some stages, people said we should go to Argentina. Some places, some people said we should go to Sinai. Some people said we should go to East Africa. One of the things that Herzl and the, and the early Congresses do is they focus. They end up focusing on Palestine. And so you had different strands of Zionism, cultural Zionism, people arguing for political sovereignty. Why that focus? Why that focus on Palestine? Because if I'm a Viennese Jew, I'm not sure I want to, you know, get up and move to Palestine. Where does that come from? Obviously, obviously, there's the historical biblical connection, but more than that, uh, where, why on that particular uh, uh, area of land? Well, several reasons. Uh, obviously, the biblical connection, but right. even more importantly. You're going to go off and colonize. You're going to go into a rough situation. It's not like East Africa or Sinai, or for that matter, Argentina, was going to be a bed of roses. And you had people like Baron Hirsch establishing Jewish colonies. The idea for some people was simply saving the persecuted populations of Eastern Europe and anywhere we can get them to is preferable to being persecuted in the Ukraine, being persecuted in the Russian Empire, or being persecuted in Austro-Hungary, which is where the worst, uh, Russia was where the worst persecution was taking place. You had pogroms, you had legal bans on Jews living in certain places or having certain professions. I mean, it was systematic legalized oppression. 
And in, in Austro-Hungary, it was, it was the kind of discrimination and anti-Semitism, which is socially driven rather than legally driven. But in any case, in all of these, in all of these places, you had systematic anti-Semitism and in many cases, overt legalized oppression. So the idea for some people was just get, get these poor persecuted populations out and rescue them. For other people, that wasn't enough. And that's where Zionism comes in. So you had some people in, in groups like the Bund saying, no, you stay where you are and you change the societies. You had other people saying, no, let's just emigrate and get out. And you had a third, the, minor, the tiny minority, which is the Zionists, who were saying, no, the only solution is to create a Jewish polity. That's the only, and the, the, the logic of Zionism follows from that originally minority view among Eastern European Jews. It is an Eastern European nationalist ideology. It grows up together with the growth of Ukrainian and Polish and yeah, Russian. There's and autonomism at the time, like Sabin Dovnov is saying like very yeah, different yeah. things. But there's a, yeah. this whole nationalist ferment in the late the 19th Zionists century. The Zionists eventually, yeah. I mean, it takes them decades in some places. In the United States, it doesn't happen until World War II. Zionism yeah. doesn't become a majority. Uh, Even view. later, yeah, for a lot. Well, in Pitts, there's a conference in Pittsburgh in the 43 or 44. My, my American Jewish historians have, have written about this, some of my colleagues. Um, in any case, there are multiple varieties of Zionism. And there are other, other there's cultural Zionism which, which rejects the idea of political sovereignty. It says, no, we just have to recreate us, our peoplehood, and that doesn't necessarily mean ruling, blah, 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 blah. But it's the, it's the, it's the sovereigntist, nationalist uh, uh, a trend. And then there are differences among them. Uh, Ben-Gurion and Weizmann, who Weizmann, Chaim Weizmann takes over, obviously, from Herzl and becomes the first president of the state of Israel. And Ben-Gurion becomes the first prime minister. Uh, Ben-Gurion and Weizmann uh, had what I would call a soft soap version. We don't mean to harm the Arabs. All we want is to have a national home. They're always intending sovereignty, majority rule, and control. But they don't say that. And then you have what are called in the, in the historiography revisionists, people led by Zev Jabotinsky, yeah, Jabotinsky, who is the only yeah. honest man amongst them. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the soft soap is just advertising. It's lies, essentially. It's hoodwinking the British into doing is their dirty Is it self-delusion or is it lies? Both. Both. Right. Some are lying. Yeah. The smart ones are lying. The, 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 the romantic idealists are deceiving themselves. They don't see the Arabs. They don't right. want to see the Arabs. Jabotinsky says, are you kidding? These people are going to fight like hell. Every colonized people fights like hell. We're a colonial project. Force is the only means. We have to give them rights later, but we will make a majority and then they become, they become subordinate to us. Uh, Weizmann and, and Ben-Gurion would never say anything like that in public. They, they did. We have Ben-Gurion's diaries. He says some stuff like that in private. So Ben-Gurion is a smart one. He knows. He's lying. Others self-deceive. I mean, you have a whole, a whole range of Zionist thinkers who sincerely believe that they intended no harm to the Arabs. We just want to come here. But when push comes to shove, do you want sovereignty? Do you want a majority in a majority Arab country? Yes. What does that mean? Well, either you flood the country with immigrants or you push the a large proportion of the existing population out. And Herzl was already talking about moving a large proportion of the original population out back in the 1890s in his diaries. Are there models that they're looking at? I mean, as you're well aware, there's a, a lot of recent work sort of looking at transatlantic history. Are people like Ben-Gurion looking at the United States? Are they looking at other colonialisms? What are the models that they're intending to build upon? Well, for one thing, they are thinking in colonial terms, in settler colonial terms. Um, you have uh, uh, Baron Rothschild and Baron Hirsch who are supporting colonies of Jews 
in various parts of the world, Hirsch in Argentina and a couple other places, Rothschild mainly in Palestine. Um, and they see this as bringing Europeans, saving them from persecution, European Jews, saving them from persecution, um, but operating as you would either with plantations originally with Arab labor or later on with Hebrew labor, i.e. creating a, a insulated, separate, autonomous Jewish economy. And that's eventually what develops in the issue of in the Jewish community in Palestine under, under the leadership of the Zionist movement, the creation of a separate Jewish economy and persecution of those capitalists who wanted to employ cheap Arab labor. No, you have to employ Jewish labor, even if it costs more, because the idea is a national project. This is not a socialist project. This is not a, it's a socialist, but the nationalist is the, is the, is the, predominating. Uh, and ironically, thrust. I don't know if, if you've seen the work of Leora Halperin, but she actually argues how capitalists yeah, are actually more friendly. Yeah, if you, the book, which I read, is like they're they're actually more friendly to Arab um, of people. Yeah, because they just want to use the... use the, It's very interesting. Her like American capitalists for favoring immigration reform because it gives them cheap labor. Uh, I mean, that's the struggle within the Republican Party between its big business leadership which wants the cheapest labor possible, crush labor unions, bring in cheap immigrants, force labor prices down. And between people who, for various reasons, don't want to be flooded by immigrants or think that they would be, and, and, and have a real economic reason for that because a flood of immigrant labor will bring labor costs down. And so uh, plantation owners in Palestine, Jewish plantation owners and Jewish capitalists were very eager to have the cheapest possible labor. And that meant Arab labor. And they were opposed by people like Ben-Gurion and, and, and by the labor movement. The, what becomes the Histadrut is a Jewish trade union organization. It's not, oh, it, I mean, there's an Arab section, but it is meant to foster what they call Avodah Ivrit, Hebrew labor. Um, the idea being to create a, a separate uh, Jewish economic sector as part of a national project. Uh, Professor, as you said earlier in the interview, Zionism is uh, distinct from other kinds of colonialism. But I do think, uh, and you mentioned this in the book, in fact, there are similarities in the way that um, people who were, you know, involved in the Zionist project in this early period, this very, uh, this kind of openly colonialist period, uh, talked about what they were doing, I think there are similarities with the way that, let's say, the the conquest, the European conquest of North America was depicted uh, in terms of uh, kind of a conflict or, or a, you know, a war against barbarism in a sense, or a mm -hmm. sort of, uh, you know, the arrival of civilized people into a, a very, you know, right. to the extent that it was populated at all, very sparsely populated, very impoverished land right. of, uh, you know, people who weren't, weren't, you know, living in modern society. And so, uh, you know, I think there's similarities in, in those kinds of those forms of discourse. Um, and I, I wonder, um, you know, if you could talk a little bit even about uh, Yusuf Diaz's own life uh, and right. you know, what he did uh, and what that says about what pre-World War I life in Palestine was actually like and the society that uh, that already existed there is kind of set against this notion that it, you know, there was nobody living there and to the extent that they were, right. they were, you know, subsistence farming and and that sort of thing. What was what was that life actually like in late autumn in Palestine? I mean, uh, before I answer your question, just let me respond to the first thing you said, which is that you're you're absolutely right. There, there is a um, there's an enormous similarity between the ways in which indigenous societies were, were described by colonists and the way in which early Zionists uh, saw Palestine. Um, 
Herzl himself talks about what he's trying to do is to create a rampart for Europe against the barbarism of the Orient. Uh, that's not a direct quote. That's just, that's, that's the essence of what he was saying. Um, and so there was an attitude among European Orientalist thinkers and uh, uh, colonists uh, all over the third world, what we today call the third world, the, the world that was then being colonized. And, and European Jewish Zionists had the same worldview as other Europeans did, as far as non-Europe was concerned. And they, uh, as you say, described, as did European explorers and European travelers and European diplomats, they described Palestine as desolate, uh, underdeveloped, uh, poor, uh, and so on. That's not an accurate description of reality. I mean, if you look at the Arabic sources, if you look at the Ottoman sources, it's part of the Ottoman Empire at that time, there's enormous change going on. Yes, it is uh, much poorer uh, than many parts of Europe, though not much poorer than some parts of Eastern and Southern Europe. If you look at Sicily or you look at parts of Spain in the early 20th century, if you look at much of Eastern Europe, <laughs> not much more developed, not much higher rates of literacy, not much higher rates, not much higher rates of, uh, of industrialization and so on. But it was a society that was rapidly changing. Uh, government was modernizing, education was beginning to spread, communications and travel were becoming easier and easier as the late 19th and early 20th century uh, marched on. Um, and I think Yusuf Dia al-Khaldi and other members of what was then an elite, it should be admitted. I mean, these were not ordinary average people. Uh, many ordinary average people lived lives of, 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 of poverty and misery. But there was an increasing number of people who were educated, who were urban, who were involved in modern Europeanizing way of life. And that really increases all over the region. In this period, it's very misunderstood. There's an idea of, 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 of decline. These societies were in decline. A very famous French historian showed that from 1700 to 1900, every major city in the Arab world increased in size and population by 50%. So this is not a society in decline. This is a society that's expanding slowly. Nothing like the speed of expansion. Uh, of European society or the, or the speed of transformation of European societies, but which was not actually in decline. And that's as true of Palestine as it is of, of uh, other parts uh, of, of, the, of the Middle East. So uh, one of the things I try and show, I've shown, tried to show this in another book, is that it's very hard to compare this European Jewish Zionist project bringing in mainly literate, mainly educated, mainly modernized Europeans and the society that they created with a society that was changing rapidly, but had nothing like the rate of literacy, had nothing like the rate of, uh, of technical ability uh, that the new Jewish settlers arriving from Eastern Europe and other parts of the world had, by and large had. And it's really hard to compare that. It's, it's it, you know, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? I, I, in a book called The Iron Cage, I have a whole chapter going into those, those kinds of comparisons. And how, from the perspective of Europeans, who looked down their noses at everything non-European. Certainly, this looked like a backwards backwater. Um, but from the perspective of the change that was uh, ongoing in that society, I mean, you have, you have schools being opened, you have railways and, and, and tramway lines and electrification and so on and so forth, uh, paved roads. Uh, it, th there was enormous progress being made as compared with, say, the 18th or early 19th century. It, it strikes me that, I mean, in the in this period, what we're talking about, sort of late 19th, early 20th century, this is prior to um, the Holocaust, prior to World War II. 
the kinds of people who would have been making, you know, the, the decision to sort of uproot themselves from, from Europe and move to Palestine would have been the sort of people who were at least somewhat upper middle class, let's say, or had the, the means to make yeah. that trip. And so, uh, I, I, you know, I, the distinction between the rate of literacy and the people who are arriving versus the rate of literacy of the, the population that was already there. I mean, maybe, maybe that can be explained to some degree by yeah. uh, the yeah. type well, they of people may not who have were been able to make class, that, that move. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm But there were members of European societies yeah. which had higher, higher rates of literacy generally. There are members of European societies that had, uh, that had a certain level of technical prowess. And then there were self, self-selecting sample. Um, as I said, many people said, let's stay and let's fight against oppression in these countries. Other people said, I'm going to emigrate to America. The overwhelming majority fit into those two categories. And a tiny minority of people who were politicized and had a certain kind of uh, 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 zeal uh, became Zionists. And so they were, they were people who had a, a belief in this project and were generally um, self-motivated and so on, even if they weren't well-to-do. Um, and, and they had supporters, Hovavi Sion, supporters of, you know, lovers of Zion, uh, were able to collect money for this project. Um, and so, and, and there were other groups that did the same. So, um, I think that, I think that to, to, to look at these two societies, what become two societies, two separate societies, the separate Jewish Zionist society and an indigenous Palestinian society and compare them, it's very difficult unless you understand those things. So I think on that note, we sort of set the table for what's to come next, and and we would very much like to have you back to uh, to take us through the rest of this story. But uh, I think on that note, uh, we can sort of end here. Uh, the book okay. uh, is The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A Set History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance. Rashid Khalidi, thank you uh, again so much for coming on the program. Uh, and like I said, we would, we would love to have you back to continue the narrative. I'm happy to do it. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you.